You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. Amen. While Ruth is up here, she's also going to read our scripture for this morning. So can we stand up together as we hear uh, the words from scripture for today? So I will be reading from Jonah chapter 4. Um, Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God appointed a plant and grew over, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with his plant. Then dawn came the next day. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted, and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then, Jonah asked, then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it is, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. And the Lord said, cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals? Thank, Thank you. you, Ruth. You can have a seat. Uh, Ruth is a tremendous short book. It's a reminder for me that uh, something doesn't have to be long to be meaningful. And I try to remind myself of that every time I preach, right? Um, but really... Short little book, but God has taught us much as we're finishing up today, looking at chapter four. And uh, as I was thinking about that, this story, you got to follow me for a little bit. It does connect, but some of you might wonder what pastors or people in ministry do during the week. You might think, I mean, you might look at me and like, yo, that man must pray just like 24 seven. Like there must be like spirituality oozing out of him. Um, I do things like eat, like I'm thinking many of you. So, uh, you know, every so often I have meetings and this, this week I had a meeting at a restaurant for lunch and we were meeting with a pastor there and just chopping it up and talking about stuff. And then um, you start to hear something and me, my ears are always attuned, right? I start to hear something. I'm like, okay, something's going on in another section of this restaurant. And I realized there is an altercation happening. Something bad was about to go down. So I don't know what it is. I had to go over there. Um, and basically, there was a big contentious fight about to happen over um, an order, over a sushi roll, actually, that was not accurately represented on the menu. So you know, about hands were about to be thrown here, right? It was getting pretty bad. Words that you would be covering your kids' ears, it was about to get pretty bad. Uh, and again, for me, you know, this whole reconciliation deal, it's not just in our church, right? You got to live that everywhere. So I'm like, okay, peacemaker, what can we do about this? And this was a cross-cultural situation as well. So I'm like, okay, let's just, and, and thank God was able to like speak some sense and get everyone to kind of calm down. Because I was like, um, this could happen on the news really quickly here. Because police were about to be called. And just knowing the way things happen, cell phones come out, like police are there. This could have gone in a really bad direction. Thank God it didn't. And it was hilarious. Well, not hilarious, but 
like a, f- a few minutes later, you're like, man, you live a weird life, yeah. But I was leaving a few minutes later, and then I passed by the main person who was really angry, and this person just looked at me and like, waved with a big smile. I was like, wow, it was like this didn't even happen. And the thought that I had, and it really does tie into today's sermon as much as it does have a point. We're looking at anger today, this idea of rage. And what, what it reminded me is that anger and its impact can be really frightening because it can come in a moment and it's reber- it can just reverberate and, and cause chaos. And it's not something to be toyed with. And maybe some of you have even experienced that when it comes to anger. And maybe if I would ask you here, you know, what gets you mad? As you think about your life here, what gets you mad? As I see myself, and I'm very open about the, I got, I got some issues, right? There are certain combinations in my life, and sometimes it seems like it's out of the blue that can really push my buttons and almost provoke a reaction that I find shocking. So um, I'll be real, pandemic has been terrible in every way, like 99.9% of life has been horrible. But the 0.1% that's not been the worst is we live in Hamden and parking has not been that bad during pandemic because no one's at restaurants. I'm like, yo, I can come any time of day or night and I got a parking spot like right in front of my house. Like, you want to know what gets me angry is when I come home after a long day ready to go into my home, see my family, and I cannot find a parking spot on my block. I'm like, I get unreasonably mad. And I saw this one stat, it's a little dated, but I think it's still true that if you consider there are 230 million registered vehicles in the United States, but only an estimated 105 million parking spaces, yo, that's like Baltimore right there, right? That's like Fells and Canton, Fed Hill, Hamden. No wonder people are so mad in their cars. Like everyone's like, driving around like this because it just provokes fury and rage. And maybe for some of you, you think about what gets you mad, what gets you angry, what gets fury coming out of you. Maybe it's someone says something to you, even in passing. Maybe they're not even trying to be mean, but it just burns you up. And maybe not even at the moment, but you carry it with you as you process later. It's like, who the heck did they think they were? What were they implying? How dare they? And you're just mad and you can't even eat your Cheerios because you're thinking about those people. You're just mad. Or, or maybe, and maybe some of your parents can identify, maybe uh, you've asked someone to do something and they just won't do it. And you're just mad. And you know you shouldn't be mad, but you're angry. All of us in different ways respond to anger. Uh, we all have situations that can draw it out of us. And we respond differently. Some of us, I call you spewies. Like, you are like the Hulk types, right? You like the, smash. Like, um, you're easy to spot, right? These are the people, like, you just don't even use a turn signal. They, like, honking on you on the highway. And, like, it's like, grandma? Like, you know, it's like angry people, like, suddenly out in the middle of nowhere. Some of us, I, I call more like stewies. Like, it stews within us. We repress it. I mean, you still feel it just as much as anyone else, but it kind of looks like you don't, but it's there. It's like a simmering fire. And we think we're burying it, but the anger is very much there. It's present uh, even in physiological ways. I mean, you, some of you doctor types, right? You know the, the medical implications of anger that's not dealt with, how it affects you. 
So however, and probably a combination of those, however you might be prone to process your anger, uh, the thing about anger, and I know I've been there sometimes with anger, some sins you feel kind of bad, Holy Spirit's working. Anger, you, maybe you know it's not right, but you don't feel all that bad at times. You almost feel justified. Like, I have a right to be angry about this. People stink. I mean, I think we even live in a time right now in history, at least culturally in our, our own nation and other places where um, people almost celebrate anger. Like, it's not a bad thing. Like, you should actually, if you're angry, you need to learn how to express this. You have a right to be angry. Other people need to know you're angry. And, and I want to also say there are some cases of righteous anger where we should show it. But um, somehow it's this, almost this ethos that you, you, if you want to be true to yourself, you need to let that anger out. Even if people have to bear the brunt of it, that's on them because you need to be true to yourself. I'm, that's like social media, right? Like I'll be, I'll be honest, I love uh, things like Twitter, just because it's informative for me, I get to really engage in community. But if I'm not careful, you follow certain things. It's like just people are Twitter raging and you start raging too. You like Twitter scrolling, rage scrolling. You're like, ah, what's wrong with people? What? And you got to be careful because it can build up this anger within you. So obviously I would question some of this wisdom of simply embracing your anger but at the same time, what I would suggest is that your anger can be really revealing. Your anger can actually be a window into the deeper parts of your soul. And we looked at emotions earlier on this summer and how our emotions often act as an indicator of who we really are. And anger is definitely like that. It might be one of the most accurate, actually. It's a, it's a sign, I think, of wisdom and self-awareness to recognize your anger and what it's showing you. And that was just all intro. Don't worry, it's not a long sermon. That was just intro. But we see that at work in this last chapter of this book of Jonah. It's a story of a man raging. And if any of you got rage issues, you will just definitely identify with Jonah because our boy raging here. So as we ask the Holy Spirit to do some illuminating work within us. Holy Spirit, guide us right now. Heavenly Father, thank you for the very words that you want us to know that point us to Christ. And Lord, even right now, you have a word for many of us that we might not even be aware of that we need. So Holy Spirit, bring soft hearts here. Illuminate areas that maybe have gotten covered away and show us the hope that is in Jesus. So thank you for your words. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. So we heard... Um, Last week, Pastor Larry preached epic message from Jonah 3 and just really kind of a hopeful message of how God can use even like the most jacked up among us, um, among us right? And the thing is, if the story ended at the end of chapter 3, it would actually make a whole lot more narrative sense. Like, it's like a good story. You know, Jonah, crazy prophet running, that whole fish thing, and now he's out, and he goes preaches, and, and the people all respond, and the whole city turns to the Lord, even those highest in power. Like, what? There's no better. You, you, that's like your apex as a prophet. You have done your work. And you would think, man, look at God go. Wow. What a great book of Jonah, these three chapter book of Jonah. And then you realize there's a chapter four. 
Because as much as there was an amazing demonstration of God's power at work when the gospel was proclaimed, I mean, look at our boy's approach. I love this in chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah comes in. He would have flunked his homiletics class. That's just a fancy word for preaching. Because there's no introduction here. You're supposed to tell funny stories to lure people in. And he just comes in. What's he say? In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. And that's it. That's his whole sermon. But the people turn. And the thing is, everyone should have been praising. This should have been a cause of jubilation. But when we come to chapter 4, it almost seems weird Because the first verse of four says, Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. Jonah, where he should have been celebrating as a good prophet, he is just full of rage. And we can learn a few things from Jonah's anger. One big lesson I think we can learn is anger distorts perspective. Anger distorts our perspective. So Jonah, he's so mad, a boy can't even see straight. I, I love words and that one phrase about when your people's angry is that they're seeing red. I love like that, that connotation there is that you're so mad, all you see is like the fruit of your anger. All you see is like this passionate red and it, it frames everything else. You can't see reality and that's what anger does to you, right? Anger clouds your vision. Anger distorts what reality is. And Jonah's anger has definitely clouded his vision and his sense of reality is so distorted. How do you know? Look at what he says to God. Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He's talking to the living God of the universe. This is a, it's not like a case of ignorance. This is a prophet who should know better, who knows who he should be talking to. But, but he's talking to someone like someone who doesn't know how to follow instructions carefully. That was the tone Jonah had. Jonah's basically reprimanding God. Isn't this what I said? How many of your parents have said that before, right? Exactly, verbatim. Isn't this what I said? That's what Jonah's saying to God. Say, God, look what you did. I told you this would happen. If you didn't follow my rules, I told you this would happen. Stinking Ninevites repenting. I told you this would happen. That's why I ran away. And Jonah just acting a fool because of his anger. Just acting like a downright fool. And, And he's showing us a really simple definition of anger. This idea that we want something, we don't get it, and we feel wronged for not getting it. If you want to boil down anger, it's right there. We want something, we don't get it, and we feel wronged for not getting it. So we're angry because things haven't gone the way we wanted. People haven't responded the way we think they should. And angry people usually justify their anger by saying it's someone else's fault. If you're angry, usually you're like, if they would just do what they should, if she would just listen to me, if those people would... We find someone to blame for the anger we see within us. But the next time you get angry, wisdom could be to ask yourself, who am I really angry at? Where is really the source of my anger? Because Jonah, 
on, on just on face value, you might have thought, Jonah really don't like these Ninevites. He's angry at them for the way they responded. But what we see here in chapter 4, yeah, he didn't like the Ninevites. He definitely got beef with them, but he really was unhappy with God. God was the source of his anger. Our boy mad at God for simply being God and doing God things, which is you do whatever you want for your own glory. That's what God does. And Jonah is mad at him. Jonah is mad at God. So read these words carefully. Look at them. Because it's beautiful, right? Talking about like compassion and slow day. I mean, all that's great. He's taking actually, some of you familiar with the scriptures, this might sound familiar. He's taking a beautiful declaration of the character of God found in places like Exodus 34. But you need to read into this. He's not meaning this as praise. He's not saying this to glorify God when he's describing it this way, it's an indictment. What he's saying is, God, you are wrong. Don't you know who these suckers are? Seriously? You are tolerating evil because these Ninevites are wicked people. And God, you know what you look like right now? You look real weak. You are weak. People are going to laugh at you. People who you, you just let them go like that? You're in the wrong, God, and, and I want to make sure you know I know. Right? Have you ever had to tell someone just because you want them to, you want to make sure they know you know something? That's like Jonah here. And you know that Jonah's perspective is distorted because when Moses originally heard these words in Exodus, his response was so different. It says, he immediately knelt low on the ground and worshiped. Like these were meant to be words that exalted the living God and praised him for his character, knowing that with a rebellious people who are always going back on their word, what was God? A God who was so patient, so kind, so loving, always for them. And it was meant to be a praise that should bring the response that Moses had. We're not worthy to be in your presence, Lord. How could you love like that? But Jonah just bringing this back in God's face like an indictment. Jonah's not worshiping. All he sees is the red of his rage. And it's clouded all of his reality for him. It, it makes him say ludicrous things like we saw there in verse 3. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to live, for die than to live. This is like when folks are having a really hard time, like not to pick on kids, but when I was a kid, like when I was really tired, or I didn't like, oh, I just want to die. Do you really? Do you mean that? It's like distorts reality. Or, oh, I'm so hungry, I could die. No, really, are you? Seriously? It like distorts perspective. It's just irrational. Jonah's irrational here. And the saddest thing for me is this is not that removed from this man, Jonah, who had experienced rescuing when he should have died in the waters and, rest, and ex- experienced this amazing rescuing from this big fish. And that might not sound pleasant to you, but that's better than drowning in the water. And God loved him and rescued him. So his words should have actually been a praise to God for that. Because back in chapter 2, we saw he was praising God. He was worshiping God. I believe his heart was genuinely in awe of the God who shows mercy and loves. Even though Jonah had run as far as he could, literally could away from God. What did God do? God saved him. And yet, just a little while after, he's like, you're a joke, God. 
full of compassion, slow to anger, and you let these fools off like that. What kind of God does that? It's sad. It's sad. And the thing is, we can shake our head at Jonah, and, and the thing is, wisdom is recognizing how our anger makes us do the same thing. I know it does for me. When I'm angry, it distorts my perspective. Um, anger affects my love for other people. And, and here's the thing, I'm not even talking enemies like the Ninevites. Maybe you got Ninevites in your life, that's a whole nother matter, you, you worked that out with God, right? If you got your own brand of Ninevites. Um, but I'm not even, I'm talking about the people closest to me. Like anger at, at a perceived affront or feeling I was disrespected or not listened to or not cared for, it can bring this rage out of me whether I spew or I stew. And I can hold like grudge against the people closest to me. It's so sad how anger can just break relationships. How many of us have said something we regret later on out of a, a spewing of anger? And you just, it's like toothpaste out of a tube. Like it's really hard to come back from that. How anger can demolish relationship. And it just takes um, and distorts our perspective on reality. Because anger, guys, distorts perspective just like Jonah experienced. Maybe some of you experienced that as well. And as anger distorts perspective, anger also ex excavates our sin. Anger excavates sin. And today's chapter, and chapter four, it's like it's good to read the whole thing because it reveals why Jonah didn't want to go preach to Nineveh in the first place. And man, this is someone, this is really um, convicting for, for someone like me who I, I actually really enjoy theology. Some of you are like, that sounds like a weird thing to enjoy. I, I enjoy theology. But in a humbling manner, the book of Jonah, it's a really scary example of how even a little bit of theological knowledge can be really toxic if you're lacking compassionate love. Even a little bit of knowledge, that's something that sounds right, it can be really harmful and dangerous if it's devoid of love. Because Jonah, he a prophet. He got a very good knowledge of who God is. He knows the scriptures. He can quote Books like Exodus, he knows God is kind to sinners who deserve judgment and wrath, but he doesn't want these sinners, sinners in Nineveh to get that same kind of love. He actually being kind of racist probably because he thinks that's reserved for God's chosen people, the Israelites, not these dirty foreigners. And he's resentful. He don't like these people. And he esteemed that God would show mercy on people that everyone knows are very wicked. But here's the thing, Jonah's anger, it's very revealing because even though he was a prophet of God, he was like a pastor. Um, even though he had been used, and we have other instances where he had been used as God's very mouthpiece, and we have indication. He had been a part of God's work, but still he was a, he was a sinner very much in need of God's grace. He needed God just as much as these wicked Ninevites did. And Jonah, what it reveals to us, and for some of you who are really clean cut, good Christian boys and girls, it's a convicting word because it tells us um, there are different ways to disobey God. In the first chapter, we saw you can disobey God by being a rebel and by running from him, by being very overtly like antagonistic to God's ways. And you know, that probably makes sense to most of us here. 
Um, but today's story shows that you can also be in rebellion to God when you seem to be doing everything he says to do. When your actions seem to actually say you are obedient to God, you can also be rebellious before the Lord. Because Jonah, I mean, it took a fish eating him up to happen and falling into the water, but he eventually obeyed. He went to Nineveh. He preached. He was a good missionary. He, you know, he seemed, he had a worship moment in chapter two. He repented. He's like, okay, I'll go do what God called me to do. I'll stop running. So he obeyed God. But we see here, even though it seemed that he obeyed, his heart did not reflect true obedience to God. He went through the motions, but his heart wasn't worshiping the Lord. And it's a good way for us to just dig in a little bit. What does it mean to obey God, even from a few scriptures? And you can jot these down. These are not on the screen. But in Matthew 22, 37, 39, Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? Basically, he's being asked, what does it mean to obey God? And here's Jesus' reply. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And as far as we know, Jesus did not qualify what your neighbor was. Not the neighbor that keep their shrubs looking good and keep your property value up. Not the neighbor who don't throw their Cheeto bags on your sidewalk. Um, not the neighbor who catches dead mice and throws them on your property. Y'all got different neighbors than me, right? No, I, I don't got If my neighbors are listening, I'm just sermon illustrator. Yeah? It's not like just your good neighbors who treat you well. Neighbors not qualified. Neighbor is everyone out there that you are called to live around. Love God and love those people like you love yourself. But Jesus takes this concept of loving others to another level. In Luke 6, Jesus teaches about love. And he says these crazy verses in chapter 6. But I say to you who listen, love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And a little later, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And what Jesus so eloquently saying is, God's love is not merely about loving the people that you find natural to love. You don't need Jesus to do that. But it's loving those whom you have no reason to love. That your flesh perhaps even crawls at the idea of even being kind to. Jesus is saying, you love them. That is what obedience to God is. It's what John writes about in his first letter. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 20, he says, If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Simply, the scriptures tell us that the litmus test, the way we really know whether we're a Christian, is our love for others, especially those who are unlovable. Because our boy Jonah, his anger, it's like an excavation project to dig out his real heart because he looked real sharp on the surface. He a prophet of God. He knows how to speak for God. He knows how to preach truth. He would have, we would have had him as a guest preacher here if he in town. But it shows us that you can even do what a good religion per, religious person is supposed to do, yet still be disobedient to God if you are not marked by an act of love for others. 
And I think a real convicting idea from Jonah is it shows us spiritual maturity is not just about having right doctrine. I'm not saying it's not about that. That's really important. But spiritual maturity is not just about having right doctrine, but it's also what's revealed in your character. It's who you are. It's how you love. Because in this story, God was revealing an obvious wickedness in these uh, Assyrian Ninevites who were far from God. That's not even an issue. They were evil. But he was also revealing a more subtle wickedness in his own prophet Jonah, who was also far from him, but just didn't see it. Who had the right theology, but was missing the greater heart of the love of God. And I don't know about y'all, but I think there's just truth there for each of us as well. So just practically, I want to just be really clear about this. It's good to love one another in this church. That's really good. And I think we have much scriptural warrant. Um, There's beauty in that. Honestly, though, it doesn't take that much supernatural to love to love people in this church. Um, Hopefully you're encountering decent, kind people who share a lot of your values uh, that that you kind of want to love. You're like, they're just easy to love. And you're just even picturing their face right now. It's like angelic. You're like, man, these people are amazing. Just makes me want to love. But what God does is he reveals our heart by commanding us to not just love the people who are easy, but actually those who are abhorrent to us. People who make our skin kind of crawl in a bad way. The people who offend you. The ones whose maybe political or ideological or even religious beliefs make your skin crawl. Like those kind of people, or or the ones who make you want to rage tweet, right? Like those kind of people. God is saying, those people, love them. Those people you don't like, love them. Those people who don't like you, love them. And some of y'all like, yo, this is a, this is one of those sermons where I feel leaving horrible because I can't do that. If you are trying to do that right now, it will show us our third point is that anger invites mercy. Anger invites mercy. Because our boy Jonah, he's basically rage tweeted. That's what he was doing when he was, looked like he was praising God. He rage tweeted. Verse four, God asked Jonah in response, is it right for you to be angry? And that's a really great question that each of us should ask ourselves whenever we're faced with our own anger. Just picture God asking you, uh, is it right for you to be angry? Because there are definitely instances where righteous anger is absolutely an appropriate response to injustice. There are some instances that happen in life, in our world, as you hear about it, as you observe it, if you don't get angry, something's wrong with your heart and you need to bring that heart to God as well. If your heart's not grieved, if you're saying, someone's gotta do something about this, if you're not having that kind of response, something might be off in your heart as well because there is definitely appropriate responses for righteous anger. But that question will also come in moments like Jonah's experiencing here. And his response is really telling because he doesn't respond, right? He just walks away. You ever do that? Someone said something to you, you just pretend you didn't hear, like you're, you pretend you got earbuds in and someone's like, they don't look like they have earbuds in right now, but they look like they're dancing to music. You just do that, right? You just ghost whoever's talking because he knew it was not right. 
Jonah knows he's not right. And rather than silence, when God asked him, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah's response should have been to humbly acknowledge his wrong. God, there you go again with your God stuff. You got me. Oh, yeah. I'm not love. Oh, you sent me as a messenger. Oh, Lord, thank you for your work. Thank you for exposing my heart. He doesn't do that. He just sulks. He just get madder. Just get angrier. And then we have this whole fascinating deal with this plant. And some of you horticulturally minded, you love this, right? You're like, see, more biblical evidence for greenery, right? But it's just like beautiful, right? This weird story, Jonah mad. So he go off to sit. He finds a good spot. Like he want to find like the prime seats to watch destruction. He's like, yeah, I know they repented, but maybe they're like me and they're going to go back on that in one day. So I'm just going to wait here, get a good spot. And he finds some shade. And then God provides this like this plant to, grow really quickly and provide country. I would love that on some of these hundred degree days, right? This plant springs up, gives him shade. He's so happy. Jonah's like, yeah, life has been miserable so far, but I got this plant now. Oh, give me shade. And then the next morning, God sent a worm. God, God playing with Jonah, right? He sent a worm. Eat up that plant. And Jonah's like, oh, no, kill me now. And like the wind is hot. And it's like some of you have been hiking with me, right? You, can, you know what's like? It's like, oh, he's just mad. And then God asked Jonah again in verse 9, is it right for you to be angry about this plant? He specifies it a little bit. And this time Jonah, not quiet. He had enough, right? He pushed enough. Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you cared about the plant which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in the night. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. Some of you love animals. You're like, yes, God loves the animals too. He counts every one of their little heads. But I looked at 120,000 people line who cannot distinguish between their right and their left. And some scholars say, He's talking about kids there, like young people who don't know quite what is left or right yet. That God's eyes are on them. And it's fascinating that we close the book on this because I'm just kind of like Stephen King ending here. It's not very good, right? It just kind of ends. Because we don't know what happened to Jonah. And we don't know. We don't know how he responded. People have some thoughts. But maybe it's the hopeful dreamer in me. I, I like to imagine that Jonah, maybe he's a little bit like, like this guy, like me. And I sometimes need to learn lessons the hard way. I wish I, I wish I was better, but sometimes I need to learn lessons really the hard way. And maybe God was giving masterclass to Jonah here on his character. That where people deserve anger and justice, God loves giving mercy. He loves giving mercy to people like the Ninevites. It's so convicting. Because Jonah's just so mad about these Ninevites receiving mercy. And God was saying, yo, dude, you're so mad about this plant. You've lost sight of these people. And I'll be real here, guys. When I read that after this story, 
I get a little judgy about Jonah, right? I'm like, man, he has a real loser class among prophets, right? He's like, he's no Isaiah. He's no Jeremiah. He a punk running from God, need to get swallowed by a fish, give bad sermons, and now griping about a plant. He care about plants more than he cares about people. And I think God is trying to give some humility and say, oh yeah, Dan, I remember that one day when um, your internet was out and you just like, so mad. You are so angry. Your internet out for 30 minutes and you're like, the world is coming to an end. Some of you are really convicted right now because you're like right with me, right? And I think what God reveals to us, and this is the point with Jonah, trying to give him a visual illustration. You get so passionately furious about things that don't really matter that much in the end, about this little plant, and you fail to see. The heart in Baltimore of 600,000 who maybe don't know Jesus and you're so mad about your internet or your parking spot or your restaurant getting the order wrong and you get, you get distracted from why I've put you on this earth to be my messenger of love to people who are in desperate need of it. And you're so distracted, you can't look beyond this plant. You're meant to be a prophet. God was giving Jonah a masterclass of what it means to see with his eyes. To see with the eyes of the Savior Jesus who is described as coming upon the city and just weeping, weeping over the city as he looked over them. Which is the way we're supposed to look at a world without Christ. So God's trying to teach Jonah what does it mean to know that mercy is available for the most wicked of sinners. But God is also trying to show Jonah, what does it mean that mercy is also available for you? Because when Jonah answered God in the beginning and said, just kill me now, you know what justice would have been? God just killing him then. Say, you want to die? You deserve it, boy. You're out. But he continues to give him mercy continues to give him chance, continues to give him opportunity to receive more mercy, more grace. As much as he screws up, Jonah is also not beyond the merciful love of God. And as much as he's given God every right, every opportunity, fully justified, no one could say God was being petty to just wipe Jonah out, he continues to give Jonah life and kindness. And he's also inviting Jonah to see his need for God. Because I'm guessing if you're Jonah, you're a prophet. You're like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm the mouthpiece of God. I'm supposed to tell others about God's love. And God in his merciful love was trying to show Jonah, no, son, you need me too. You need me as much as these Ninevites do. And what I would say to you guys, for myself and for all of us, your inability to love others will often be Jesus' invitation to receive his mercy. Because there's a misnomer about the Christian faith that it's just about doing all the good things, and, and that's true. Do good things, obey, 
But if we're not careful, we can step like a nice, really checkbox list of what good Christians do. And we can start to justify ourselves like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm okay. I'm not like those people. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing what I should do. I'm in church like most of the time. I, I serve others. I'm generous. And those are all good. But we might not see the heart that still needs Jesus. Because here's the thing, you can even do all those things. You can even be a really nice person and you don't need Jesus to do that. Because I know plenty of nice people who don't know God who are nicer than honestly some of us. But here's something you cannot do out of your own goodness is love those who are horrible. Love those who hate you. Love those who are not very kind and cuddly. Love those who everything that they believe in, you're like, if someone made a list of everything I disagreed with, that's them. You cannot love people like that out of your own strength. But what it's meant to do is uncover your heart that says, this is why you also still need a savior. Because you're good, you're not that good. You don't love in the way I want you to love. Because the way Jesus loved he set a whole high bar. Maybe you heard some of those descriptions of how he said to love his enemies. Um, Jesus set the bar really high because he wasn't just telling us to love those who are easy to love. He was saying, you're going to love the people that you cannot love. And if you read those things, your response should not be, okay, Jesus, I can love those who are hard to love. Your response should be on your face saying, who can live like this? Who can love like this? Who can be like this? And the answer is no one except for Jesus. And that's why you need him. When you cannot love, let it be your invitation to come to the feet of a merciful Savior who pours mercy upon mercy upon those who don't exhibit the way we're supposed to love and says, come to me, come to me. And receive love of Jesus. Because when Jesus said, love your enemies, this was not just prescriptive. It was descriptive of what he himself would do. It's described in Romans 5.10 where it said, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more having been reconciled will we be saved by his life? Jesus didn't just say to love your enemies. He loved his enemies by giving his life for them. And if it wasn't clear, that's you and me apart from God. It should astound us, the kind of people that God loves. But my prayer for you is may that astonishment also apply to know how God loves you. It's not just astonishing that God could love the terrorist. It's not just astonishing and amazing that God could love the racist. It's not just astonishing that God could love the misogynist, the violent person. It's amazing and astonishing that God could love you and me. When we think about miracles in the Bible... I don't know about you, I always go to the bread and fish. I think because I like food, right? I always think about the miracles of like Jesus, like multiplying bread and fish, I, I, amazing. And we go to those really showy miracles. But the more I think about it, I think the greatest miracle that Jesus does in the scriptures is give us the power to love those that we have no reason to love. That would be a true miracle. And as we think on that, as we come up to this table, the Lord's Supper. This is intended to be a regular invitation to sit with the God, to dine with the God who shares astounding sacrificial love. That if God loves us like that, 
He invites us to find life in him so that we may love the same way. Do you find it hard to love some people? Welcome to the club and welcome to the table. Come to the Savior who loved his very enemies and now actually makes it possible for us as we're led by his spirit. So stand with me right now. I'm going to invite our music team to come up. And we're going to sing a few songs before we come to the table. And after the songs, I'm going to invite you to come down the middle aisles, take one of these elements, and we'll take it all together at the end. You can go back around the outside aisles. So wait together to do it. But before you rush up right away, can I encourage you as you're singing, and we're going to be singing right now about the great love of God. Think about how much God loves you, but not just when you did everything you're supposed to, not just when you were a lovable person, but when he loves you at your worst when you're his enemies, separated from God, Jesus gave his life so you could be his own. He loves you like that, but he doesn't just love you. He loves those you even find abhorrent. And if it's hard for you to come right away, if you're thinking about who is it hard for me to love, bring that to God first and say, God, help me to love people like you love me. If you're not a Christian, I would invite you to, maybe today could be your first communion, saying, I'm, I want to be known by God like that. I'm fallen, I'm separated from him, but Jesus paid the price so I could be made right with God, reconcile with him. I would love to talk with you after. One of our pastors would love to talk with you. But wherever you are, we invite you to come to the table. Join me right now in prayer. Lord, help us. We confess, Lord, our standards of love are much lower than yours. You call us to love in ways that are beyond us, but thank you that it's an invitation to your mercy, Lord. As you're revealing our hearts here, that's really difficult to love. And for some of us, Lord, we have specific memories of people that's hard to love. So we pray for a healing work even right now, Lord. Maybe for some of us, we need to deal with some stuff, anger that we're holding in, someone who justifiably deserves it. But Lord, you haven't called us to change anyone. You've just called us to love. So we come to you with that heart. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. So I invite you to sing, come to the table, and let's respond to the good news of Jesus.